Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Our guest on this episode, Caroline Dodds-Pennock, is the UK's only Aztec historian. Countless books have been written about Europeans in the Americas during the Age of Discovery, but Caroline's new book, On Savage Shores, is the first to tell the story of the tens of thousands of indigenous Americans who came to Europe as enslaved peoples, diplomats, explorers, servants and traders. She sat down with Luke Naylor Perrett to tell us more. Caroline, thank you so much for for joining us today. Thank you for having me uh, to talk about the book. It's really nice to be here. So yours is is one of sort of restorative history, if you like. You you say, we know the story of colonisers and conquistadors, white men striding across the globe, but this is the story of the people who went the other way. You write people back into the narrative, you challenge assumptions, but before we get there, let's address the traditional narrative, right? What's the story that people may have been taught in schools, the major players, the start of the timeline, things like that? I think the majority of people think about this period that I'm writing about as starting in 1492 when Columbus goes to the Americas, discovers in heavy inverted commas, because of course you can't discover somewhere where there are millions of people already, but leaving that aside for the minute, this idea that Columbus goes to the Americas and discovers this new continent and it opens up the world to exploration and colonisation and so on. And then you have uh, people like uh, John Cabot, as we know him in English, Giovanni Caboto, who goes to North America, Hernando Cortes and the conquistadors in Central South America, Pizarro. And it's really this story, as you said, of of white men exploring and encountering and beginning this globalised world as we think of it today. So that's exactly the, the narrative that I was taught at school. So, so let's start with something that may be surprising to some people, which is the timeline. What was beautiful about the stories that you tell is that it's a narrative in which indigenous people are playing football games in Seville and French churches are being used to baptise indigenous people way before Cortes reached Mexico. Why does that matter? Why does some person eating sweet potatoes in Seville matter? What effect does that have on the wider narrative that we're told? I think it really matters because most people just don't know that indigenous people start coming to Europe from the very moment that Europeans go to the Americas. The first time that Columbus comes back from the Americas, he brings indigenous Taino people from the Caribbean with him. They are here while Europeans are going to the West. And they are being seen, they are talking to Europeans, they are being enslaved by Europeans. This isn't a part of the story of transatlantic slavery we know about very much, I think, in the popular narrative, but they're absolutely here being enslaved in European households and on farms and so on. They are translators and go-betweens and traders and family members as well. People are bringing them as children and partners. It's part of that transatlantic story from the very beginning. And it's so important to recognise that because I think we haven't thought in very reciprocal terms about this exchange. People like Olivet Otelli, David Olosoga and others have done some great work writing black people back into the histories of Britain and of Europe. You know, we've seen things like Black Britain, Black Europeans. And I think people have started to realise that the past is a more diverse place than perhaps the traditional histories had led them to believe. But Indigenous peoples haven't really been part of that story yet. And so I think there's an awful lot more work to do in transforming how we view this bit of the past. 
So there are two things there that I really want to jump in on. First is the other slavery that you mentioned. That's that's someone else's term. But you know, some people who are listening might be surprised to, to hear that Indigenous people were enslaved. I think we have a rough idea that that suffering was kind of over there in the in the Americas. But it's difficult to say. But but why has that other slavery been forgotten or, or decentered? What were the differences with the transatlantic slave trade? Why why does that matter? So the title you used, The Other Slavery, is from an amazing book by Andres Resendez, which is super readable. And so I, I'm not by any means the first person to point out that Indigenous peoples were enslaved. He estimates that as many as a million people were enslaved before 1600, so just in the first hundred years or so. And of those, maybe tens of thousands make the journey across the Atlantic. It's only in the last couple of decades that people have started even really thinking about Indigenous enslavement at all. Prior to that point, I think people realised that Indigenous people were um, oppressed, that they were marginalised, that they were their lands were stolen, that many people died from violence and disease, but they hadn't thought about them as being part of the story of enslavement and forced labour. And academics have started to think about that in the last couple of decades, but it hasn't really dented the popular narrative of slavery. And this is something where African-American legacies of enslavement are very, very visible in the diaspora of black people that are spread across the Americas, where we don't have the same kind of really visible legacy of indigenous enslavement in Europe. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's been forgotten. It's also not on the same kind of scale or the same kind of unique horror that you get of the 12 million people who are shipped across the Atlantic. Indigenous peoples are experiencing the horrors of the transatlantic passage. They are dying in large numbers. Some are choosing to uh, throw themselves into the sea, kill their own children rather than be taken into bondage. In many ways, it is a similar story to what happens with Africans being taken to the Americas. But it's also a, a distinctive type of experience. It is typically, it's largely in the first hundred years that this transatlantic trade, because then it's made illegal. It's also often a hidden trade. So most indigenous enslavement is actually illegal. You have to get through legal loopholes to permit it. So very often people are uh, illegally traded. And so they're hard to trace in the historical records. They don't use words like Indio, which is the Spanish word for Indian. They use words like loro or brown. So you, you, it's quite difficult sometimes historically to trace them as well. And so there are all these reasons that have kind of come together to mean that I think until recently, this other slavery has often been ignored or forgotten about. I think Resendez really nails it with the title because he's saying that it's not just the other slavery to black enslavement, it's also the other slavery in that it's a different kind of slavery. It's one that's often hidden. He parallels it to contemporary enslavement, which is often uh, to modern day slavery, where it's often kind of hidden behind other kinds of words and experiences, but actually people are still forced to labour against their will. So I want to stay on this a, a little bit and situate us in... You know, on the streets of Seville, where you say one in 10 people in the 1500s were enslaved people and there were converted Jews and, and Africans and indigenous people, you could call them a tangle of travellers, right? And I think uh, Ana Paula de Silva, that you, you quote, um, says people have been naturalised not to see indigenous people in, in the narrative. And you know, it's, it's my opinion that the kind of imagined whiteness of Europe is one of the great scourges of of history as, as it stands. What do histories like yours and and the sort of indigenous people who who arrived in Europe, what does that do to the current idea of the white Europe, right? Was was this a conscious forgetting on our part 
you know, who, who does who does your history threaten, basically? That is a big question, because I think you're absolutely right. There is a kind of imagined whiteness. I don't think that most people think that history of Europe is white because they're being kind of deliberately racist about it. It's just that that's how they've been conditioned to see it. We imagine Tudor England, for example, as a place of white people in ruffs and cod pieces and so on. And we don't see the black people or the indigenous people who may have been present, like the Brazilian king at the court of Henry VIII. I mentioned the Brazilian king at the court of Henry VIII to Susanna Lipscomb on her podcast. And she said she's a Tudor specialist. And she said, I didn't know about that until I read about it in your book. But it's not a hidden history. It's published. It's it's in kind of collections of sources. And yet people have overlooked them. So I think for most people, it isn't a conscious forgetting today. It's an overlooking and not realising. It's not the history they've been told. That said, in the past, and to some extent in the present, there is a deliberate creation of histories that reinforce states which are inherently based on colonialism and therefore on white power. And so US history, for example, is all about creating the idea of a melting pot and of Europeans and people actually from other countries as well who are arriving and taking empty lands. They are discovering uh, lands on which there's nobody in in the myth who is uh, farming it and so forth. They're able to take it. You know, it's the pushing back of the wild frontier, all of this kind of thing. And what that does is erase Indigenous people from that history. There's been some really interesting discussion around the new Yellowstone documentary that Kevin Costner did, because he's also in that uh, TV programme about Yellowstone, which is all about land and um, uh, owners of land. And places like Yellowstone, these national parks, which are created as ideas of wildness, of wilderness, of um, open landscapes, they actually remove the indigenous people from those lands to create the national parks. There were people living there and they've been deliberately erased in history and then in things like the national parks to create an idea of the open wilderness. There's been a lot of really great work by indigenous writers on this idea of the erasure. People like Nick Estes, who's done really, really interesting work. He's got a great book called uh, Our History is the Future, which shows the way that these stories of activism go from the past to the present, how indigenous people's ties to land are deliberately erased in order to justify colonists taking their land. And so there's kind of, I think for most people, as I say, it's simply that they don't know about these histories. And people have been incredibly enthusiastic to learn about them, found them really interesting, are keen to hear about these different ways of thinking and and see these new narratives as they see them. Because the interesting thing for me is that scholars have been talking about this for a couple of decades. I'm not pretending to be the first person to ever notice these travellers. But what's interesting is that these scholarly narratives haven't made a dent on popular understandings of the past. And I think some of that is because these national myths, these attractive ideas of uh, adventurers and explorers are so deeply rooted in our national psyche and in our national narratives. A beautiful answer and and, and prompts me to to think of something else that really, you know, has stayed with me, which is, you know, something that else is incredibly deeply rooted, which is language itself, right? Um, You quote Sir James Henry, a, a Maori community leader who says, the language is like a cloak which clothes, envelops and adorns the myriad of one's thoughts. Your uh, work is is filled with kind of very 
conscious interrogation of language, um, you know, Turtle Island instead of America, stuff instead of products, which I particularly enjoyed, uh, Moctezuma instead of Montezuma. What is the role of, of language translation, these interactions between indigenous folk and, and Europeans? And why does that matter today as well as in the past? I think language is incredibly important because how we talk about things shapes how we think about them. So you mentioned that I use the word stuff in the book. Uh, there is a chapter that was originally in the book called Chocolate and Chilies because I couldn't come up with a better title for it. Because if you call it products or commodities, this is the one about objects and, and foods and things like that coming to Europe. The minute you start talking about products or commodities, you're into the language of markets and you're making assumptions about what these things are for, that they're for economic exchange and so on. And I really, really wanted to call them stuff. And my agent said, you can't call it stuff. And eventually I came up with the idea of the stuff of life, which sounds more elegant, but is really a way just to get people to interrogate the question of where they're starting from. Nobody is saying that Europeans, for example, don't regard these uh, objects sometimes in mythical or spiritual or uh, religious ways, or that indigenous peoples don't have any sense of markets or trade or exchange. What I try to argue in the book is that indigenous people sometimes see these things, feathers, for example, which Europeans see in terms of pure commodities, as something really spiritual and meaningful in terms of power and metaphysics and ideas of land and, and religion. And in changing the language, I'm just trying to get people to think about it in a different way. It's difficult because you end up then stereotyping points of view and, and saying, well, do Europeans think like this and indigenous people think like this? And that's why I have so many footnotes. And that's not the point at all. The point is simply, we have been conditioned to think about things in this one way. And so I want to try and flip that script and think about them in a different way. And language is part of that. So I start the book actually with a note on language, as you know, saying, well, I'm going to try and use the names for people that they used for themselves rather than names that have been given to them. I'm going to be careful with my language because I am a white Oxford educated woman writing about indigenous histories that have often been appropriated and misappropriated and used for entirely hostile and problematic purposes. And so I, I want to be really careful to foreground indigenous voices where I can and to signpost people to indigenous scholars and voices and ways of, uh, of thinking rather than to, to try and speak for these people, if that makes sense. So taking language as your starting point, I think, can just be a, a really great way of getting people to think from a different point of view. Look, what happens if instead of using the name that people gave to a, a community, we use the name they use for themselves? What happens if instead of talking about Aztecs, which is what they were called from the 18th century, we talk about the Mexica? That's a, an interesting example because it's the one case where I have to call them the Aztec Mexica because it's a name that is so deeply rooted in people's understandings of them that if we don't make that reference, people won't change the way they think about the people, if that makes sense. So I'm rambling now. But there's so much there in terms of language, because, of course, interpretation at that moment of encounter is really, really difficult because the two sides don't understand each other. So one of the main groups of travellers is people who are kidnapped by Europeans or later on volunteers to go with Europeans and become go-betweens and translators in this in-between space. I want to say on those, those go-betweens, because I think they're, they're fascinating examples of 
sort of sites of power, right? You know, you, you have someone who has to translate two sides and, and often invisible, as you as you point out beautifully. And there are other moments of these, these uh, you know, you, you give people back their agency in, in very powerful ways, you know, gossip uh, of, of legal ways of getting your freedom as being a site of resistance and networks uh, underground of, of resistance and, and even just the petitioning of royal courts as this, this moment of resistance. That said, it is all set against the backdrop of something that was like staggeringly bleak and very, uh, for want of a better, better word, like not powerful, right? These... 90% of populations died in, in epidemics and, and people had their faces branded and people threw themselves into the sea. Could you speak maybe to trying to strike that balance between giving people back their agency and, and investing these sites of power in importance, but then also the macro suffering? How do you balance that? It's incredibly difficult because you want to give these Indigenous people every opportunity to be actors in their own stories. And at the same time, they are constrained by forces of colonisation, oppression, often brutalisation, as you said, individuals who are branded, enslaved, kidnapped, uh, whose families may well have died en masse in epidemics. There are these very bleak uh, sources. So, for example, a set of account books where it says on this particular day, uh, nine nobles were being paid for to be looked after in Seville. And then the next day it's eight people and the next day it's seven people. And they're just they're dying. They're dying of diseases to which they have no immunity. And yet those men are indigenous nobles, Nahua nobles from what is now Mexico, who have come to Spain to petition the royal court in order to gain privileges and power for their families, their cities, their communities at home. Uh, Don Lorenzo, who is a Tlaxcalan, these are the allies of the Spanish in the conquest of the Aztec Mexica people. He dies during the expedition in 1528, the embassy to Spain. And yet his embassy is successful in winning a number of privileges for the city. So there's this incredible balance between the two. It's really, really difficult. And... It's also difficult to please every audience in trying to write about it. So I've had some people who've said, well, you're demonising white people, you're bigoted against white people. And other people who've said, well, you're working too hard to give agency back to these indigenous people. And you kind of, but that's the point, I'm trying to. And I think the point here is that if you're telling a story that a mass audience aren't familiar with, and some people will know about this, but many, many people will not, you have to strike that balance between saying, look, this is a really horrifying period. People are experiencing appalling violence, brutalization, disease, epidemics, and not just indigenous people. Europeans also are living, ordinary indigenous people, the uh, ordinary European people, sorry, are often living very, very bleak, hard, disease-ridden lives. But the unique brutalization that is happening at this time and also the unique... Well, unique is probably the wrong word because other people are being brutalised, but you know what I mean? Distinctively brutal period of colonisation, distinctively uh, the epidemics that Indigenous people are experiencing in much greater numbers than anyone else because of the, the lack of immunity is a backdrop against which we have to read all of this. The irony is that the sources that we have, mo the most rich sources that we have for the 16th century travellers to Spain 
are from the two opposite ends of the spectrum. We have the sources of nobles who went to appeal to the court at the very top end of the spectrum, so letters and petitions and so on, and legal records. And then we have the records of freedom suits by indigenous enslaved people who are trying to be freed in Spain. And so you have these two amazing, rich, legalised, but very, very detailed sources about people's life experiences from the two ends of the spectrum. And that's what it's about, I guess, is that there's just such a diversity of experience here. We can't stereotype that experience. There are some people who live what would be considered quite a ordinary, typical life by European standards. So uh, we have accounts of young men going to uh, France, for example, to Normandy. And because, so Esomeric is the most famous example, though it's disputed whether he actually went or not. There's a whole fuss about it. But there were lots of people like Esomeric who simply go live in Normandy, marry, have children, become actually quite influential as landowners in their area, but nothing out of the ordinary Lots of these very, very ordinary people living in these communities. Same in Spain. But then you have some people who are nobles. So uh, Francisca Pizarro, who is a descendant of an Inca ruler who comes to Trujillo in Spain. She is exiled to Trujillo. And then she builds a palace with her husband and appeals to secure the rights of her children. It's a bit of a dark story again, because she's a child who's married to her uncle and all kinds of things. But but she's very influential. She becomes very important. And then you have people who are, so like Martin, who we know about from his freedom suit, who is kidnapped, brought to Spain, branded on the face, uh, and successfully appeals for his freedom on the grounds that he must have been a child when he was enslaved, which is kind of a dark uh, again, reason to to gain freedom, but it's all about whether you're legally enslaved, not whether you should be enslaved at all, which is, from a contemporary point of view, really problematic, but is how these cases work. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, I mean, I, I think you you hold those two truths very well throughout the book, and, and you get the sense that, yes, there was a lot of power, but also it was, there was a, 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 lot of, a lot of misery. Um, there was something throughout that answer that reminded me of a reading of the book that I that I had, which is there's a lot of class dynamics here. You know, there's there was a transatlantic elite where half indigenous sons of conquistadors ended up being knighted before their their parents, which I thought was fascinating. There were Inca princes that were married off to genteel Spanish uh, women. And then at the same time, you know, uh, when sweet potatoes were brought back to Europe, the elite thought that it caused leprosy, but the common people ate it and, and loved it. Does a class reading add anything to our understanding here? Can can we see a kind of broader sort of Marxist perspective? Does that does that is that fruitful? I I don't know if I would do a Marxist reading of it, but I do think that social status is incredibly important in determining people's experience in this period. To some degree greater than race. It's a, a larger determinant than race. So as we've mentioned, you and as you were saying, you have the mestizo mixed heritage 
sons of ind- conquistadors and indigenous women coming to Europe and becoming influential figures. Um, so there's a, a guy called Diego Torres y Moyachoque who comes from Toromeque um, and he comes in 1575, has a very exciting life story where he's uh, shipwrecked and uh, discovers that in the Caribbean there's these desolated indigenous islands and he essentially becomes a a campaigner for indigenous rights because where he sets out to try and assert his own power, he realizes the the potential devastation that's going to happen in his own community and he, he becomes this campaigner at court. But for him, the fact that his social status is high is what determines his experience at court. He is received as a nobleman, he is respected, he receives expenses in line with what a noble person ought to be given. And you see this a lot. The, uh, there's this amazing contradiction in Spanish law where indigenous people are both kind of considered poor and vulnerable and also must be treated according to their social status. So you have things like the children of the Inca coming and being paid for in these incredible amounts of money because the court thinks they have to be kept in the manner to which they've become accustomed. And so it becomes very expensive for the Spanish crown. I talk about Spain a lot because, of course, the book is about the first hundred years or so. So the British and the Dutch um, and the, the kind of the Netherlands, the Flemish areas, and also northern France are in there a lot as well, and Portugal. But a lot of the very rich records we have are, are from Spain. And um, so the... A lot of what I'm saying about class, I guess, what I want to say was I'm specifically talking about in Spanish law. So in Spanish law, your social status and being a Christian are absolutely vital if you want to be important. Now, that's also true in theory in the colonies, but there's something about being closer to the centre of power that means that the law is applied more directly, if you see what I mean. It's much easier to brutalise indigenous nobility if you're a long way from the centre of authority. Uh, and to treat So in uh, uh, Diego Torres y Mochoque in Spain is treated as this elite nobleman. In his own homeland, he is treated as a potential object of suspicion for being mixed heritage, half indigenous and half Spanish, because people think, oh, well, being mixed like that might mean that you're a bit untrustworthy. So it's it's quite interesting. But social status, yeah, absolutely, because we also see that happening in London to a great extent. You see indigenous sons, uh, or in some cases rulers, as I say, come to Europe and they're treated pretty respectfully, actually. They're treated, uh, the, we have these two guys, Manteo and Wanchese, who come over uh, as translators and help to produce the first Algonquian alphabet in London. It's actually an Osomokamuk alphabet with a man called Thomas Harriet, who usually gets all the credit for it, but they're actually really involved in it. And we know from how they're dressed that they're being treated as basically middle-ranking noble people. And there is certainly a lot of race, what we consider now contemporary racism, in the commentary around them. Indigenous peoples are often uh, stereotyped as savage, which is why the title of the book, you know, I'm flipping, I want to flip that script, flip that story, because savage is a racial slur nowadays for Indigenous people. Uh, So it has to be used with very great care. But in in this period, the term sauvage or savage comes up over and over again about these people. They're considered to not have true histories because they don't have alphabetic writing. They're seen as um, like Moors, like that's the terminology of the time. So like the Muslim people, um, uh, uncivilized. Uh, often stereotyped as cannibals or uh, human sacrifice, partly because in Spanish law, if someone is a cannibal, you can enslave them. 
So there's all, I'm not saying there is no prejudice. Of course there is. There's huge amounts of prejudice. But in terms of your legal treatment, your social status is actually incredibly important in this period. It's in the this we're at the beginnings of the creation of things like scientific racism and racial hierarchies. And so there's a lot more blurring of categories, I think, uh, than you get even 100 years and definitely 200 years later. Completely fascinating. And that really comes across in, in your work. At the beginning of that 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 answer, you you mentioned one of the the, the characters that appears uh, who was shipwrecked multiple times, and the, the sea features incredibly heavily in the book. In fact, you know, I think the, the Florentine Codex is kind of the, the the way in, and and I have a quote from it here: "It is great, it terrifies, it is that which is irresistible. I live on the sea, I become part of the sea, I cross over the sea, I die in the sea, I live on the sea. Beautiful stuff." But as I was going through the book, I, I almost felt jealous because. It feels like there's this sort of profound difference in how we perceive the sea and and adventure and mystery and how people in, you know, the 1500s, 1600s did because of maybe Google Maps and GPS and, and kind of the, the, the knowing of, of the sea. Do you think there is an irreconcilable gap with, with the, 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 the wonder and the mystery of the sea? Did you try and tap into it? Can we? Yeah. That's an interesting question. It's, it's particularly interesting because I've done other writing about water and I've wondered about writing histories about water. And so I've thought a lot about indigenous views of water. And very often we think in terms of the Atlantic, but for indigenous people, it's actually to do with the ocean. It's the encircling ocean. Um, they don't see the Atlantic as a specific space prior to the arrival of Europeans. They think in terms of that encircling ocean because um, for many indigenous peoples, the world is surrounded by water. That's the edge of the known world. In the Aztec Mexica worldview, the, the waters actually come all the way up to the heavens like a globe. So it's almost like you're enclosed by a ball of water, which is a beautiful way of thinking about it. It's a really glorious image. And so there's this fascinating thing where people shift the indigenous people shift from seeing it as an edge to to seeing is it, it as a as a point of passage you know something that you cross to get to something else and we have this uh, amazing canto this song which I, I put in the part of it in the book which clearly talks about indigenous travelers to europe and their the way they've imagined and described that as a space that your indigenous peoples in mexico are then talking about and they've it's for them, it's become a center of power. It's where the suckling tree that Aztec Mexica babies are born. They believe that's on the other side of the water. The Pope's Basilica is, is almost a, a cavern, a womb-like space. There's all these amazing ideas of indigenous power blending with European and new ideas about transatlantic power. Indeed, but Europeans too, in this period, saw the sea as a place of wonder and terror and mystery. They did not think the world was flat, but they were very aware of the sea, not just as something you travel on, but also as a boundary. And I should say that indigenous people also traveled. You know, they had big canoes. They, If they crossed the Atlantic or the Pacific, it was only by accident. It wasn't very regularly, but they certainly had very long distance voyages along the coast. And so those are also, they're waterborne people as well. These are two oceanic peoples who are meeting each other but they just have different types of view so for Europeans it's a place of opportunity um, a place of trade which it also is for indigenous people but also a, a kind of a scary place they're very aware of the dangers of the sea the nature of ocean crossing is extremely perilous extremely problematic and at the beginning of this period you have this amazing moment 
where 1492, which with the crossing of the Atlantic, 1497, then you get the rounding of the Cape of Good Hope to India. And only a few years later, you then have voyages, regular voyages circling the world. So we go from localised awareness of ocean to global awareness of ocean quite fast, if, if that makes sense. I'm not sure I'm answering your question, though, about this irreconcilable difference. Well, I there, mean, there, do, have you, you travelled on the sea a lot? Not a lot. I used to sail when I was young. I was a sailor when I was young. And I do like the sea. I find there's something really calming about just sitting and looking at the, the sea. And I, I used to go and do a bit of, you know, we sail in a yacht round, round islands and things. And I, I did, I really did enjoy that. But it, I don't think it's comparable because your sense of safety is so much greater now than it was then. That sense, I don't mean that the sea is perfectly safe. Of course, people still have accidents. They still die. But you don't feel like every time you're stepping on a boat, you're taking your life in your hands. And I think that ocean crossing at that time was far, far more perilous. People didn't always didn't know what was on the other side. Even if they'd heard what was on the other side, they may well not have seen it. It's a much more of a space of imagination. That said, I think it still inspires, doesn't it? It still inspires artists and travellers. And the the ocean is still a really, in many ways, a really unknown place, isn't it? The depths of the ocean are one of the few places that we still have not explored. So th there's some amazing work actually on maritime and oceanic history, which takes the ocean as a space and whether it's a transformative space as a starting point. And some really interesting stuff about whether, um, by people like Marcus Redeker, about whether the ocean is a, a radical space, a place of egalitarianism. David Graeber's new book, just out on the pirate enlightenment, which I really want to get, is all about this idea of a kind of an egalitarian space, which is partly inspired by indigenous views, according to him. So I, I cannot wait to read that. So there's really, there still is really interesting work, I think, about, about the ocean. And I think it, this is not a question I had thought about. It's really interesting. Apologies, but I think you answered it really well. And oh, fascinated gosh, to go to a history of, of sailing. I don't want to psychoanalyze you too much, but the history, of course, you sailed. Like the way that you talk about the ocean's not anymore. adventure. Not anymore. That's a shame. Speaking of micro histories, actually, so the, the histories of, of, of the sea and, and the ocean sort of objects, a, a real takeaway that I have been um, shoving into every conversation that I can is is food, right? Because, you know, I studied history at uni and yet the sheer list of things that we get from the Americas, I have a list here, tobacco, cacao, tomatoes, potatoes, chilies, avocados, corn, turkey, peanuts, vanilla, beans, squash, tobacco, basically like bougie brunch and Christmas, completely indebted. And there are fascinating other stories. I mentioned leprosy earlier on. Tomatoes were, were seen as dangerous because they looked too much like vulvas. Um, mm -hmm. I, wa I wonder, you know, firstly, how important is it that we recognise this cultural debt to this uh, the, the, to the Americas? And then secondly, you know, what have we lost in, in the translation? You know, the, the fact that... Um, you know, cacao was seen as divine and linked to marriage. I, I, when I have chocolate, I don't think of that possibly for shame. What, what, what do we owe and, and what have we lost? I think it's really important that we recognise the debt to the Americas. If, if there's one part of the book that some people will know about, it's that. It's about what we call the Columbian exchange, this exchange of stuff, the idea that cattle, pigs, 
and so on went to the Americas and then in exchange uh, and, and also uh, citrus fruits and, and various other things and things like cacao, as you say, and, and tomatoes and potatoes came from the Americas. That said, I think a lot of people don't actually know that and don't realise that. And when and we've completely appropriated these things into national European narratives. So when people think of Italian cooking, they think of tomatoes. Imagine Italian cooking without tomatoes or, or peppers. Imagine Asian East Asian cooking or West African cooking without chilies or peppers or sweet potatoes or manioc, which isn't a big thing in Europe, but is huge in Africa. So things that, I mean, think about British cooking without potatoes or Irish cooking without potatoes. These things have become part of our national identities. And for me, I think recognizing that all of our national identities are created from exchange and from global cosmopolitan movements can help destabilize these very fixed ways of thinking about the world, can help us realize that migration is not a new thing. Movement is not a new thing. You know, uh, fish and chips, isn't it, are introduced by Sephardic Jews and potatoes are from the Americas. So... We are all a product of these exchanges. But when people tell the stories of migration in Britain, for example, they tend to start with the Windrush generation and they don't go back into these much longer histories of exchange. And if they do recognise, these are popular histories that I'm talking about, if they, and our imagination about them, if they do realise that people were travelling before that, people tend to be seen as exceptions, as curiosities, as just occasional people who kind of pop up and, and add some... Uh, lively kind of uh, anecdote to the narrative. But in reality, these people are the norm. They're not everywhere. They're not being seen every single day by every single person. But in coastal regions, in imperial centres, you have indigenous people. And from the very beginning, you start to get new foods, new practices. The most obvious one is smoking, not the most popular nowadays, but smoking is an indigenous practice. People weren't smoking before the encounter with the indigenous Americas. It's not just that tobacco comes from the Americas, it's that the ways of consuming it come from the Americas. So, and, it, and lots of different ways of consuming it. So chewing tobacco is indigenous, snuff, um, obviously cigarettes, cigars, pipes. I mean, people will have heard of uh, the Calumet, which is often called the peace pipe, which is stereotyped as being connected with relationships with uh, indigenous people in North America. Um, Smoking a pipe, though, is an indigenous practice, as is smoking in order to alleviate tiredness or chewing tobacco in order to alleviate tiredness, which a lot of enslaved people um, of African and indigenous descent start doing in places like Seville very, very early on. So you have this incredible exchange of cultures, of tastes, of practices, of ideas that's happening right from the beginning and, of course, was happening with other parts of the world earlier on. You know, this I'm focusing on 1492 onwards, but you can go back to Silk Roads and exchanges with North Africa and wherever you want. The Romans in Britain, you can tell a story of, I mean, do we talk about the Angles and the Saxons who are also invaders? You know, how far do we go back? We, it, we are created of a history of migration and of movement. There's a new book out actually called Migrants by Sam Miller which makes that that argument. Again, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting that. And I, I guess I'm, the, my book is trying to make a, a contribution to that. I've forgotten what the second part of your question was. 
Sorry, I, there's so much to talk about that I end up just expanding your questions. It's I? better Sorry. to have too much to talk about than too little. Um, the, the the second part was was what we've lost in the translation. You know, the fact that we oh, that we yeah. don't we don't really. I mean, the average person who lights up after a, a club night doesn't think of the spiritual connection. The average person who who has chocolate doesn't think of the fact that it poured from the ears of ears of gods. You know, it's sort of been for de- me. I, yeah, I don't think they need to. I personally, I do think it's important that people recognise that these things have deep histories. But I don't think you know, tobacco and sage, for example, still have really sig- important spiritual, sacred significance to Indigenous peoples. And we shouldn't be copying them. And that's, you know, we shouldn't be taking those for ourselves. It's it's part it's perfectly natural and appropriate that these things have evolved and become used in different ways they're used in different ways by many indigenous people not every native person who lights up a cigarette thinks that i'm engaging in a spiritual practice here but then there are many sacred rituals that involve tobacco there's do you know there's a shortage of white sage in the u.s at the moment among indigenous communities because so many people have started uh, shop like shops that sell crystals and things like a new agey kind new of age, practices yeah. have started encouraging people to do smudging which is where you burn sage in order to cleanse and so indigenous communities are actually having trouble accessing this sacred uh, herb which they have always picked in a way that is deliberate and respectful so that you just take a small amount so more will grow it has it's grown wild and now because it's become commodified indigenous communities are having trouble getting hold of it there's a shortage because it's sort of become appropriated into other people's practices so there's I don't know I've kind of wandered away from your original point because the difficulty is I things do evolve they're going to change chocolate has become something different and it's amazing and important to think about how it was considered to be a food of the gods how it was a a religious uh, was a religious consumption for many uh, peoples in Central South America, but also it was a display of wealth. It was something you could drink because you were rich, because cacao beans were a form of currency. So if you can afford to be grinding them up and drinking them, you must be terribly rich. So they had many multiple meanings also for indigenous communities. They, they, there's no simple meaning. And so I think, I, I'm, I'm not sure it, I would think of it in terms of things being lost, uh, at least not to European communities. Indigenous communities have sometimes lost these traditions or had these traditions deliberately erased. It was illegal to practice things like the potlatch in Canada until very, very recently, until only a few decades ago. And all of the, the potlatch is a, a religious ceremony, uh, um, a community ceremony where you distribute wealth. And there's a lot else to it. It's a sacred ceremony. But the it was illegal. And all of the objects, the masks, the costumes, the uh, ritual objects, they were all confiscated whenever they could get their hands on them, the authorities. Indigenous languages were banned. They were deliberately wiped out. Hairstyles, foods. So I think it's, it's really important that there's been a loss for Indigenous people at times and that they're trying often very hard to recover those things. I don't think it necessarily makes sense to think of it in terms of a loss to European society. It's more an evolution in my mind, I think. So as long as we don't project it back onto Indigenous communities, right? Exactly. I think knowing the history is what matters rather than feeling we've lost that history, Mm -hmm. because I guess that I don't feel like that history belonged to me in the first place. 
really good answer. Thank you. And actually, just as we come to the end of our, our conversation, something I, I've I've been thinking about th- throughout reading the book and, and through talking to you is is that claim that historians shouldn't meddle in politics, right? Should they should stay to the past and shut up about the present? But you know, your work uh, has a very clear and, and important political undercurrent, sometimes overcurrent. I, I felt that. I want I want to hear your take. You know, what, what are the motivations, personal, political, that, that kept you writing, kept you fighting against historians who may use the term woke nonsense or say that enslaver is just a synonym for of his time? You know, what motivates you? How, how do you respond to, to these people? I think all history is political, isn't it? Because the people who say, oh, we just want to keep our traditional history that history has a political point of view. It, it was about justifying empire and creating a, a nation of good imperial citizens, you know? So the idea that some kind of rebalancing towards understanding indigenous perspectives is a radical, woke conspiracy, the same people who say we just want history to be neutral say we want the true history. But there is no single true history. There are just many, many narratives. And indigenous history is one of the many subaltern narratives that has been forgotten, that has not been talked about, that has often been hidden. It's a, it's a natural continuity of methodologically, actually, of things like history from below, ordinary people's history, women's history. Um, I was at a conference uh, a few years ago, and an, a couple of years ago, an online conference, and Somewhat, we were talking about indigenous histories uh, and inverting narratives of conquest so that we could tell an indigenous perspective on conquest and invasion. And a very eminent scholar said, ah, but shouldn't we think about the different types of empire and the conquistors and what it meant to them? And I said, well, I feel like we have been doing that for about 50 years. So maybe now we could just think about the other side just for a little bit. Like when, you know, history was men's history for a long time. So we've done some women's history for a bit. Maybe that would be okay. And so for me, it's more, it's not just about a rebalancing. The work is an act of recovery. It is about telling stories that have been forgotten about and bringing them to a wider audience and helping people to understand. uh, Forgotten is the wrong word because some people know about it and indigenous communities certainly know about it, but a, a past that hasn't, been in the mainstream so much. But of course, it is also political. Indigenous communities remain marginalised, disadvantaged, more likely to die of serious health conditions, more likely to be undereducated, more likely to be poor, more likely to be shot by the police, more likely to be the subject of sexual violence than white people, uh, or in many cases, actually, than African Americans. And so it's I mean, you might have heard about the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women campaign. So many Indigenous women who have disappeared and died. It is absolutely devastating. And so recognising the roots of contemporary structures of oppression is also important. And not all of my work is about that, but but being sensitive to the fact that you're talking about a community that is in many cases marginalised and oppressed and whose own voices are too rarely heard means that for me, it's a real responsibility to be in the position of being allowed to come on things like this and talk about Indigenous histories and why I I, I think I've tried really hard to 
signpost people as well to indigenous writers and scholars there are amazing people doing fantastic work you know i i mentioned nick estes um but there are, are so ma- I, I i co-authored a piece with a, a wonderful writer called Layla Blackbird, who is working on indigenous enslavement. She is amazing. And she's just one of many, many new scholars that are coming through historians and writers who deserve to be heard. And also the voices of indigenous communities who are being heard through things like TikTok and so on. There's these really vibrant conversations going on. I I guess what I'm trying to say is that I don't take lightly the responsibility of being the person to say to bring these stories to a wider audience. And so for me, acknowledging the the political context in which I'm doing that is vital to the work. Now that will turn some people off. Some people want to hear exciting stories of travellers, but they don't want to hear, do you know that 90% of these people also died? They don't want to hear that you know these people's descendants are struggling to recover the the remains of their ancestors but those things are tied together in my mind and and I think it would be ignoring that responsibility not to acknowledge that in the book I don't think I do it all the time but I do think it needs saying you you do a fantastic job of it and I would say as an explicitly political thing your uh, your US publishers cannot uh, are giving a copy to any indigenous and tribal library which I think is a very important thing and if anyone knows any of those libraries please do reach out absolutely it, people if can reach me by email I'm easy to find online or on Twitter and it, any equivalent community group because I know not every area of the Americas has tribes in exactly that way so anybody representing a, an indigenous community please do reach out to me and the publisher will be delighted to send you a free copy of the book uh, just as a final final question from me which sort of synthesizes the whole the whole book and I do I do implore everyone to go and read it but um I think probably the most political thing that you do throughout is that you force us to feel things generally you 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 ask constantly you know what did that feel like the the trauma the scars the seasickness the loneliness the excitement um this is a, this is an increasing move in history which I really like I've just read um Kit uh, Hayam's book uh, before we were trans, which does that beautifully. I think you blurbed that as well. Um, yeah, I did. There's there's a few historians doing this, and I think it's it's a beautiful thing. Um, the one line that really got me in your book was the, the line, "How long did you wait before assuming that your son, brother, father, husband was dead?" Um, and that image of someone standing on the shore and, and feeling that. As a final question, the role of empathy and kind of vicarious imaginaries in history. Do you think that should be a thing? And and if so. Um, you know, how do, how do we do that? I think it has to be a thing for some kinds of history, not for everybody. I started as a cultural historian trying to understand how indigenous Mexica Aztec people could commit human sacrifice without being dehumanized by it. That's where my first book comes from. And so, and in that context as well, I was working in a place where the sources are sparse and they're often from external perspectives. Um, And so you end up having to try and think yourself through the evidence that you have into the world of the people that you're talking about. And for me, that's really important. I know the speculation, not everybody likes speculation. They want history books to be facts. You know, what do we know? And I do think as a historian, it's really important for me to be clear when I am speculating. I'm not pretending that I know things I don't know. 
I read a book actually, which I really enjoyed recently, Malcolm Gaskell's Ruin of Witches. And he uses empathy very actively. Um, it might be the ruin of all witches, but I'm sure people could find it. He uses empathy really actively. and But he has a note saying, look, I'm going to avoid words like maybe or perhaps too much. And then in his footnotes, his endnotes, he's very clear about where his sources are coming from. And I, I guess like that's a, a different way of going about it. Maybe I could have said maybe or perhaps a little bit less. But I guess I've always felt as a historian that it's it's incumbent on you incumbent on you to be clear what you know and what you might know and what you're speculating about. And but if we're gonna have any hope of accessing the worldviews of people who didn't leave records of their own travels, then empathy and speculation is absolutely central. It has to be. You only can bring life, bring emotion to these lives by speculating. They're pretty amazing in their own right. But that's, for me, I always come back to the people. There are people who are political historians and economic historians and military historians, and that's great. That's what they're doing. And people love reading that too. I want to know about people. I want to know what they were doing and why they were doing it and how they felt about it and how they experienced it. And so that was the starting point for me in the book. It became this bigger story about how their lives, their experiences transformed history and can transform the way we think about history. But my starting point was the people and where they were coming from and what, what they must have experienced. Um, and I guess that's, that's just the kind of historian that I am. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation. Everyone, please go and buy on Savage Shores. Uh, thank you again. Thank you very much for having me. This episode starred Caroline dodds Pennock and was produced and presented by Luke Naylor Perrett. The series is made by me and Esme Bright, with help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. If you loved this episode, rate it, review it, and subscribe to the series. If you didn't, tell no one. There's lots more history in our archive, with guests including Wild Swans author Young Chang, the BBC's Greg Jenner, and more. Find it all at howtoacademy.com. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>